We are going to jump right into our Bible study. Hopefully you've found your way to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2 today. Uh, We'll get about halfway through, and let me just say that when you come to Calvary, you kind of expect that you're going to have a Bible study. And uh, the big challenge today is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? So we have been working our way through Paul's letter to this church in Colossae called the Colossians. And uh, Paul had never actually been to this church in Colossae. He had been to a place called Ephesus. Colossae is about 100 miles away. And uh, Paul established a church in a town called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. There were some people who were there at that time. They became believers, and then they traveled 100 miles and then they, to their hometown, and then there, there they started this church that we know as the Colossian church. So when Paul writes this letter to this church, the church is about five years old at this point. Paul is no longer at Ephesus. He's now in Rome, and he's writing this as a prisoner in Rome. So he's writing from prison. And so over the last few weeks, over the last two weeks, there's a couple of things that we've talked about. For instance, there on your outline, we begin in uh, chapter one, it says, Paul says, to the saints and the faithful brethren who are in Christ, who are at Colossae. And I want you to just write this down by way of reminder that Paul is writing to faithful believers. They love the Lord. They're doing the very best they know how. They're serving the Lord, which is why Paul would say there on your outline, He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Paul was thanking God for their faith in Jesus. And one of the things that that we mentioned is that when somebody is truly converted, they become a believer, God's spirit comes to dwell within them. It manifests in their lives as loving the things that God loves the most, which is why he says, the love which you have for all the saints. And and, uh, so, so you and I as believers, when God's spirit genuinely comes into our lives, there's a love for the things that God loves the most. And God loves his people, his family the most. And so that's how you know. That's how you know. So that was the introduction. And then Paul uh, goes on and he continues on. And and because they're a faithful church, their problem is not going to be immorality or things like that or uh, unfaithfulness. But there were some false teachers who were coming into the church and they're saying some very strange things. So Paul writes to clarify and to counteract what these teachers are saying as they come into the church. So last week, Paul's big first clarification was this. And there in your outline, I've taken three verses or three phrases and put them together. Speaking of Jesus, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. And that was chapter one, verse 15. For God was well pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is fully God. And we talked about that. And uh, then he, he went on to say, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. All things were created. So last week we, we went through all that Paul said and Paul went out of his way in every way that he could possibly say to drive home the point that Jesus is God, God in the flesh. And so I want you to write down there, Paul starts by reminding them that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It's the dividing line between everything that's Christian and everything that's not. All Christians believe that Jesus is God, everybody else believes that Jesus is not God. And so that's the dividing line. So chapter 2, he continues on and uh, in chapter 2, I'm going to read the first three verses and then we'll, we'll come back and uh, we'll talk through it. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. Laodicea is a town, it's about a mile away from Colossae. 
and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Paul was never at this church. Um, and their hearts, that, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all of the, and I've underlined some words here, wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. Christ is the mystery. And we talked about that last week and again this week. In whom are hidden, and I, I want you to, all of our Bibles have the word all in there, and I want you to circle the word all. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There, there's a, a lot in this little passage. Um, there in your outline, I put part of the passage, and it just says, the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. And, and we, we saw words in that little passage, you know, the treasure, wealth, wisdom, and knowledge, and, and a, a true knowledge of him. That, that's important. The reason that Paul is writing that is that there, are, there was the beginning of what's called the Gnostic philosophy, which held that, that it's great that you love Jesus, but if you're going to be really spiritual, uh, there's something else that you have to do. There, there is a secret knowledge that you have to get. And so what he's saying is that it's all in Jesus. So I want you to go ahead and write down all true knowledge is found in Jesus, which is why he uses the word true knowledge. And he says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what does that mean? Well, in in our day when he says all the treasures, all the wisdom and knowledge is all in Jesus, uh, a way that, that might apply to us today. If you're here today and you have questions about the origins of the universe... Well, last week, Paul said that Jesus is the creator. He's the creator of everything. Remember when we talked about that? So if you're here today and you say, well, I kind of think that it came through some other process, then what that means is you've gone outside the true knowledge, the true wisdom, and you're gaining your information from some other source, but that would not be Jesus. Uh, For me, I'm going to stick with Jesus on this one. So uh, hopefully you do too. That's where you say amen or something like that. So I don't feel totally insecure up here. Like, really? <laughs> Have we been doing this long enough? <laughs> you still? So, so, um, so, so um, you know, another way that when he talks about all the knowledge and wisdom, you know, it's everything that you, you, we need for life and godliness is all in Christ. Many of you know that, that in my background, I have a master's degree in counseling psychology. I'm actually trained as a therapist, but I'm a lousy therapist. And, uh, and, and you know, for a reason, uh, you know, they, they come in and, and they say, you know, pastor, I'm a pervert. I'm like, well, come in and sit down and tell me about it. And 10 minutes later, I'm standing on my desk going, you are a pervert, you know? So I'm not a good, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not a good counselor. They, everything's so simple for me. They come in and they say, you know, pastor, I can't get a job. I'm like, get one. See, it's very simple. So I, I, I don't do a lot of counseling, as, as you can imagine. And uh, so when people come up and they say, pastor, will you counsel us? Uh, the staff is always like. <laughs> but here, here's my point of that. Psychology is great. But when, when you, you boil it down, a psychologist can, can help you deal with your guilt, uh, but can never take away your guilt. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus is the only one who can get to the core and deal with that issue. And psychology can't do that. So, so Paul's point here is, is that you know, it's all found in Jesus. So verse 4 he says, and here's why this is so important, he says, I say this, 
I say this, so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. Their arguments, that, the arguments that are coming into the church, and when they come into the church, they're always very well packaged, they're always very uh, persuasive. Uh, but, it's, but it's also, and, and so Paul just says, I, I don't want you to be deluded by those things. Once again, remember that this is a faithful church. They're not being carried by these things, but Paul's just warning them to make sure that they don't. He says, I, I don't want you to be uh, misled in that. Verse 5, I'm going to read from verse 5 to verse 7. And he says, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline, the stability of your faith in Christ, Therefore, everybody underline this verse, verse 6, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And uh, that's a great verse to memorize. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So the first thing that that I want to mention here is in verse 6. He says, just as you have received Christ, when you received Jesus, it was by faith. And if you received him, now think about what you did. You received a Jesus that you've never seen. And you've trusted him for an eternity that you've never been to and you've never seen. It's all by faith. And if you received all that by faith, everything else you need to, in the same way, walk in him. It's all by trusting him uh, for the things that you see, for the things that you, you don't see. So as we get into this, Paul is going to, through this chapter, is going to drive home the point that it's all by faith. It's, it's all by trusting Jesus. It's not by ritual. It's not by ceremony. It's not by a list. It's all by faith. And we'll see that as we travel through. Two weeks ago, when we began this book, I, I brought up the commentary on Colossians and I showed that although this chapter has only, uh, this book has only four chapters, the commentaries are actually larger on this book than on the books that are uh, some much larger books in the Bible. And the reason being is that every word could be its own discussion or its, its own teaching. And so I, I want to just highlight a couple of things as we, we travel through very quickly just to show you what I mean by that. And again, this is going to be a hop, skip, and a, and a a jump. Verse 5, he says, for even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now some of your Bibles will say it a little bit different. They'll say steadfastness, and uh, that's fine. These are military terms. These are military terms to where uh, in the Roman army they would be steadfast, they would plant their feet, and uh, come what may, they are not backing down. They're, they're not backing up. This is it. This is the line in the sand, and, and, and we're not moving. And so Paul says, that's who you are, and I appreciate about that. So they are very, very steadfast. And then verse 6, he says, so that's part of, of our walk. We're steadfast. We're not backing down. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. And uh, I love it where it says, not only are we steadfast, he says, so walk in him. And uh, if you were at the Lady Seasons event on, on Friday night. My, my wife Cheryl, as she spoke, she opened up by saying, Dan, your pastor has had three wives, of which everybody was aghast. And because uh, it's actually been like four or five. But, but, 
But she shared, she shared, she says, she says, but I want you to know that I've been all of those wives. So before you run out of here, I've only had one wife, okay? And, but, but the idea is that it's been a journey. It's, it's been, we've been growing, we've been learning. And so we're, we're very different than, than we were. And so in your walk with the Lord, it's a journey. You're, you're a pilgrim. And so yes, we're steadfast, but it's also a journey. But then I also want you to notice he goes on and in verse 7, he says, having been firmly rooted. I want you to notice it's having been, having been firmly rooted. And uh, there he uses an agricultural term. And firmly rooted means that it's very, very deep. The roots are going, the roots are growing deep, but also a tree is something that's growing up. So there's growth, but there's depth. And then he uses the word, verse 7, he says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up, built up. And uh, that's an architectural term. And that implies that in our walk with the Lord, there's this progress we're going forward. And then he says, uh, built up in him and established. And that word established is, is a, it means to be, or strengthened, some of your Bibles will say, just means a foundation. There's a, there's a, a, a foundation that's going deep. And then he goes on and he says, just as you were taught. So part of our walk with the Lord involves, or instructed, some of your Bibles would say, involves receiving, receiving knowledge, and that's what causes us to grow. But then he says, and the result of all of this, there, the very last line, it says, overflowing with gratitude. Now, some of your Bibles will say abounding with gratitude or abounding with thanksgiving. And uh, that's an interesting word, overflowing or abounding, because it's a word that they would use to describe a river that's overflowing beyond, beyond its banks. It's, it, it's flooding. So the idea in all of this is if, if uh, you've come to the Lord and this is who you are, and this is what's taking place, the result, and you'll see it in your life, is that you're going to be overflowing or abounding with thanksgiving. It's, it shows that the work of God's Spirit is doing something in our lives. And so that's something that we need to look at and say, you know, is, is that what's taking place? So, uh, and again, I, I think you'd agree that, that uh, all of those words that we just went through could be an entire conversation in and of themselves. We just highlight them and, and move on. So if that's the case, if that's the case, if that's all that's taking place, then make sure, verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and uh, I want you to underline principles of the world rather than according to Christ. The key phrase in this verse is the principles of the world. So, so the idea is anything that's not pointing you to Jesus, you want to be very, very suspicious of. And uh, so he says, don't be taken captive. The way that you and I are taken captive by these things would be that we don't know the truths of God's word. We don't know the truths of God so that when one of these things comes in, it has a way of taking us captive. It uses the term philosophy. This is not against philosophy. Um, In their day, philosophy was a much broader conversation. Philosophy just means the love of wisdom. But in their day, it was a much broader conversation. So let me just give you some definition here of what it would mean in that day. Um, it would be, it can refer to any body of knowledge, any group, any point of view, and even magical practices. So, so for our purposes, it would be any thought process 
that doesn't point you to Jesus because it's all about Jesus. Uh, Traditions of men. Nothing wrong with traditions, but the thing is it's all about Jesus and it has to come from what God has revealed and uh, so those things are secondary. Then it says elementary principles. And your Bibles will say a little bit different. This is a word that's debated depending on which commentary you would use. It it can mean the basics of the world's thinking. And uh, that's one way of looking at this. We as believers, we think very, very differently than the world. For instance, your 16-year-old daughter goes to school and she feels sick. She wants an aspirin. She goes to the clinic and she says, I need an aspirin. They said, we can't do that unless we call your parents. So they call you for an aspirin. She shows up and she says, I want an abortion. They go, okay, that we can take care of. Does that not make sense to anybody else other than me? It's like, <laughs> give the kid an aspirin, but could you, make, you know, give a call to me? Uh, we homeschool for... Uh, that's, I'm going to move on. So anyways, the... <laughs> so, <laughs> but that word, elementary principles, I, I want to just show you what that, that word means and how it can be translated and what it, what it can mean. Any first thing. Uh, the letters of the alphabet. So it could be the ABCs of anything. The elements from, all, uh, from which all things come and the material causes of the universe or the heavenly bodies. And uh, because it says heavenly bodies, and later on we're going to talk about giving reference to new moons and things of that nature, some hold that this could also be, uh, they, some were looking at astrological things to see if that had any effect on the life of the believer. And that, that could very well be true. So he says, don't be taken by these things, but always remember, always remember this, verse 9, for in him, now I want you to underline in him, as we travel through this, I want you to underline every time we come to in him or with him, because it's all pointing to Christ. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It's not in those things, it's in him. When it says, in him the fullness of deity dwells, the idea is everything that you think of as deity or God is all in Jesus. He's he's the fullness of God. And so remember, everything points to Jesus. So just as Jesus is fully God, and he's the the completeness of God, uh, here's the next thing you need to know. But I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 from your outline, something that we want to highlight, the point that he's making. For in him all the fullness, and you see the Greek word there, pleroma, of deity dwells in bodily form. It just goes on. And in him you have been made complete. And you see the Greek word there is pleruo. And he is the head over all the rule and authority. That Paul is doing a play on words And uh, in that play on words, it's the same word. So if I were to say run, running, ran, it's it's essentially the same word. It's just a slightly different tense. And so when he talks about the fullness of Christ, he says, just as Christ is full, uh, fully God, in the same way you have been made complete in him. So here's how this works out. Just as Jesus is fully God, when you became a Christian, you were you became a Christian, you were immediately complete in Christ. This goes against the deception that was creeping into the church that was saying uh, you need to look at the traditions or you need to listen to the arguments of the philosophers. 
Uh, you need to be baptized. You need to be confirmed. And, and have this whole list of things that they would say that you need to do. He's going to say, no, you are complete in Christ. So what does this mean? If you don't get anything else I say today, I want you to get this. Because this changes everything. Verse 10, let me just read it again. In him, once again you have that in him, you have been made complete. It's in the past tense. It's a done deal. So what does that mean? When a baby is born, and we would actually hold at the point of conception, that baby is completely human. The baby is completely human. When that baby is born, there is nothing else that they have to do to attain humanity. They are human. Uh, It's a done deal. There there is nothing that they can do to become more human. Uh, They are as human, a day-old baby is as human as an 80-year-old man. Nothing they can do can ever make them more human. They are complete in the sense that they are human. Does that make sense? And once they are human, there is nothing that they can do to ever be unhuman. Uh, At least it was that way 2,000 years ago. With some of the genetic things going on today, that might not be so. But uh, the idea is that there's nothing you can do to become unhuman. You are human by by virtue of, of that conception. So you're human. On the day that they are born, again, they are as human as that they are ever going to be. The hope is going to be they are complete, completely human. The hope is going to be that they will develop and that's a good thing. But whether they develop or they don't develop never changes the fact that they are completely human. Does that make sense? They are completely human. And, and so some, some of us have had children and there are some very difficult developmental challenges that, that our children have faced. But that might be the case, but we have never at any time questioned whether or not that they are human because that's a settled it's a settled issue they are human they are complete in their humanity so no baby no matter what the challenge uh, whether there's a challenge or there's no challenge they are complete in their humanity so and again there's nothing that they can do to ever become inhuman it's been settled it's the same thing in Christ when you become a believer everything was completed. You were complete in Christ. The hope is that like a baby you hope to develop, but whether you develop wonderfully or you develop not so wonderfully, when you were born as a believer, you were converted, you were complete in Christ. And just like you can never undo your humanity, you can never undo your completeness in Christ. And you notice that it says you have been made complete. It's nothing that you did. It's something that he did. It's nothing that you do. It's something that was done for you. And that's the point that he's driving home. So again, the hope is that we will develop, but, but that doesn't change the fact that we are complete. And so go ahead and write this down, that Jesus has made me complete in him. So then he goes on, he says, so let's talk about that completeness. And uh, verse 11 I put there on your outline, I like how the NIV says it, says it 
uh, brings out uh, a little bit more clarity. He says, now in him, and once again you want to underline that in him, everything is in him, you were also circumcised. And then I want you to underline in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. In the Old Testament, they had a physical surgical procedure that they would do that's called circumcision. It was a, a part of the covenant. It was an outward sign uh, that showed that you were b- belonged to the Lord and uh, that you were one of God's covenant people. And, uh, it, it, and, uh, it, and by the way, if, if, um, if you don't know what circumcision is, then today when you go home, just look it up. I'm not going to talk about it. It's just way too painful. So I'm going to move on. <laughs> But what happened in the ancient times is they began to look at circumcision as though that made them right with God. So they say, are you right with God? They say, well, I'm circumcised. And they looked at something outward, believing that's what made them right with God. Jesus comes along and says, it's never something on the outside, it's always on the inside. So notice the difference. Uh, Let me read it again. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. They cut away the flesh. He, what he cuts away is at the sin nature. Uh, what, and then he goes on to say, not with the circumcision done by hands. In the Old Testament, is done by hands. This is something that he does without hands. And the old uh, circumcision could not help you as far as overcoming sin, but this new circumcision cuts away in our heart the, 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 that, that sin nature. It gives us the ability to, to overcome sins. So what I want you to to write down there is that what he's saying, probably the best way to say it is that Jesus changed my heart. He did something on the inside, not on the outside. So the, the idea here is that in our walk with the Lord, we never look at something outside, something external, so, which would validate that we are right with God. It's always something that he does in our heart. So have you ever heard somebody say, I've been baptized? You say, what's your relationship with the Lord? And they go, well, I was baptized. Well, I was confirmed, or I'm part of this denomination. Those are all external things. And what Paul is saying here is we don't look at those external things. We look at the internal, what God has done. So, so then he says, so let's take it a next step. And he says, let's talk about baptism. Baptism. Verse 12, he says, having been buried, and then once again, with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him. And I want you to notice, it's all in the past tense through the faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. So go ahead and write this down and then we'll unpack it. Jesus raised me up eternally with him. What happened to Jesus physically is what happens to us spiritually. Jesus physically died and then he was raised from the dead. We haven't physically died yet, but we've identified with him in baptism. But when he says in verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who also raised him from the dead. When he says you were raised from the dead with him, the idea is it's a done deal. It's a done deal. We tend to skip over this, but this is a reference to what we would commonly refer to as our eternal security. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised with him. And uh, let me just highlight a verse from Romans there on your outline to show how this works. 
It says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Does everybody see that? When Jesus was raised from the dead, the idea is he will never, there is nothing that can ever happen that would cause him to die again. When you were raised with him, when you were raised with him, and it says he's the one who raised you, the idea is when that happened like him, he will never die again. There's nothing that can ever happen that he can die again. That's the idea that takes place with you and I. We've been raised like that. And, and another thing that I would want to highlight here, being baptized is a great thing. It's identifying with the Lord in his death, burial, his resurrection. But Paul, every time he talks about baptism, he always points out that I'm not talking about the ritual, the ritual of baptism, because some people say, I've been baptized. So I want you to notice this little phrase there in verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him, or you could say raised up like him, through, and here's how we were, through faith in the working of God through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul here is saying we weren't putting our trust in the ritual, the water, what we've done, and that is we put our faith in the working of God. Does that make sense? So there, just, just point to uh, the, the idea is it, it, we're not trusting the fact that we were dunked in water, we're putting our faith in the working of God. It's something that, that he did. Verse 13, he goes on. He says, now when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, underline this, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our sins. And uh, once again, the emphasis is on what he did, not what we do. And uh, so he says, when, and write this down, when I was dead in my sins, Jesus made me alive in him. And when he makes us alive, we can never be made unalive again. Verse 13, again, the last line, it says, having forgiven us all our transgressions, everything we've ever done, everything we'll ever do, having canceled out the certificate of debt uh, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So go ahead. That's good that you said amen. That's it's good. Who said that? Bill said that. Bill gets it. <laughs> so go ahead and write this down. Write this down. By paying the price for my sins on the cross, Jesus canceled out any spiritual debt against me and gave me complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. So Paul's saying, so don't let anyone talk you out of it. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. It's not based upon what you do. Everything is what he did, he did, he did. So let me just talk about the certificate of debt real quick. The certificate of debt. 2,000 years ago, under the Roman Empire, if uh, you were sentenced, you broke a law, you were sentenced to prison for seven years, they gave you a certificate of debt. And you had to pay your debt to society. That's where that phrase comes from. So they would give you a certificate of debt. They'd say seven years. So they put you in jail. And then the jailer, every year on your anniversary of being in jail, he would write out paid one year, paid one year. Now, at any time you escaped, that debt still had to be paid. But guess who had to pay it? 
the jailer, the jailer. For those of you who've been around the Bible for some time, you'll remember the time that Paul is in the Philippian jail. There's an earthquake, the doors are open, and the, the jailer, the first thing that he does is he pulls out his sword to stab himself because he realizes, I'm going to have to pay that debt. Paul says, hey, we're all here, put your sword away. Great story. So you'd have to pay that. When you paid that, they took your certificate of debt and they would write paid in full paid in full. And uh, the, the Greek word is tetelestoi. And uh, they would write that on there. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, very interestingly, at the end of his crucifixion, the last thing that he said to man, he said, it is finished. Remember that phrase? It is finished. That phrase is tetelestoi. It means paid in full. That's what Paul is referring to. He's taken that, that certificate of debt and he's canceled it out. Anything you've ever done, anything you're doing, anything you ever will do, he's paid that price. He kind of knew that you were going to do some things after you became a believer, so he paid for that too is, is the idea. So verse 15, he goes on and he says, and when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, uh, over them through him. Everything again is through him, through him. And uh, I've just underlined disarm the rulers and authorities. There's a lot more there. We can't talk about it today, but write this down. Jesus disarmed any spiritual influence that claimed power or influence over me. Those authorities, those powers, whatever they would be. And he's released me from whatever it is that had a hold on me. So this is where the plot thickens. This is what he has done for us. Since he has made us complete in him. And since he's the one who changed our heart, and he uses the illustration of circumcision on the inside. And since he has eternally raised me up and has completely forgiven, tell me you did not close your Bibles. I am going to call the Bible police here. Do I look done? Open your Bibles. I got to show you one other thing. You knew better. You knew better. But a voice inside said, shut the Bible. I know. So, based upon everything that he has done for us, Paul concludes in verse 16, and everybody underlined the word, therefore. Therefore. Does everybody have the word therefore, first word of verse 16? Pretty much? Okay. Well, if, if you don't, it's not in your Bible, we got to get you a new Bible. So, so most of us have the word therefore. It's conclusion, conclusion. Therefore, if Jesus has done all of that, here's what I want you to know. Therefore, that's the case. No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. And you want to know what he's talking about there? You want to know what he's talking about? Good. Come back next week, because we've got to stop right there. <laughs> We're going to pick that up next week. So, so here, here's, here's uh, what I want to say. We will pick that up. We're out of time. But here, here's what I, I would want to say to you. You know, God has all of us on a unique journey. Part of my, my, my unique journey is that 
for some crazy reason, God allowed Cheryl and I to have 12 kids. And uh, what we've learned is that those kids are not in our family. I won't be graphic, but those kids are not in our family because of anything that they did. It has nothing to do with anything that they did. Uh, It has nothing to do, they're not here because of any merit in them. Those kids are in our family because of some other things that took place, whether through adoption, and I'm just going to move on at that point. But the point is, when they became our children, they were born into our family, they are ours because, not because they are good, uh, they are ours because they've been born into our family. And so their goodness or their behavior has nothing to do with their being ours. And they are complete in the sense that they are plurids. They, they were born into this family and, and there's nothing that can change that. They can change their name, but does that really change the fact that they're my kids? They can go out and commit terrible crimes. Does that change the fact that they're in my family? They're in my family because they were born in my family or they were adopted into my family. And you know what I knew before those kids showed up? I knew they were going to do some things. Now, some of the things they did, I had no idea they were going to do that. I thought it would be other things, but they've done some things. And it's never changed my love for them. You are in God's family, not because you thought this up, not because you were good, not because of any merit that you brought to the table, but he chose to invite you into this family. And the only thing you ever got to do is you got to say yes to him. And even your ability to say yes to him is a gift that he gave you. Everything is in him, from him, by him. And we just get to respond as his children. Now, why is that so important? You can never lose your salvation because you didn't start it. You can't maintain it. When you come to understand that you are complete in him, apart from behavior, when you blow it, it's very different for the person, and we're all going to blow it, the person who is not secure who does not understand that they are gods because of what God has done with full knowledge of some of the things that they might do, the person who is not secure in their salvation, when they blow it, they tend to run from God. Things always already mad at me. The person who is secure in their salvation, when they blow it, they run to him because they understand that he's the one that loves him. Some would say, Some would say, are you saying that because you're eternally secure that you can just go live any life that you want to live? Here's what I'm telling you. When you were converted, you were born again, God's spirit stepped inside. Last week we said the mystery was Christ in you. Jesus moved in. And here's what I can tell you. When somebody is converted, they can no longer go live in sin and feel comfortable. And if you're a believer and you've walked away for a season in your life, you know that part of your coming back was that you were miserable the whole time you were gone. It never feels comfortable. So the believer comes back because they feel miserable living that type of life. And they come back to the one that they know really did love them.
and it's a whole different experience. And with that, I'm going to close in prayer, and then, yes, you can give the Lord a hand. And so you read verse 16 there until the end of the chapter, and we'll pick it up next week. Maybe TJ will teach. I don't know, but uh, we'll see. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you so much for your spirit. Thank you so much for just loving us and revealing through your word that it's all that you have done. You raised us. You gave us life. You're the one who did this. You're the one who made us steadfast. And everything is in you, and it's by you and for you. And, and uh, we want to we rest in that. And then as we rest in that, we want to go forward representing you well representing you well. I pray, God, that you keep us till we meet again. And then, Lord, let us rest in the knowledge that, that we're here because of what you did. And we didn't think this up. We're yours because you called us. And we're kept because you keep us, not because of our ability to do anything. And we love you and we're grateful. Again, keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you guys next time.